0: It's good to be with you. My name is Taylor. I have two young children, and so I did not get an extra hour of sleep this morning. feels like I lost two somehow. I don't know how that works, but I'm glad that you're here. I drive an old 1979 Subaru Brat. I call it my truck, but it's about like two motorcycles with a plywood in between. Not very big. And it's, it's very old. It's so old it doesn't have a check engine light. Do you know what you do if you don't have a check engine light? You have to check the engine. You actually have to open the hood every time you fill it up with gas, and you have to check the oil and check all of the fluids. In one sense, the check engine light is just designed to automate that process. It's designed to remove the work it takes to drive an old car. Because now the car tells you when something is wrong with it. Have you ever had the check engine light on in your car? Maybe it was on when you drove here. You tried to ignore it, just drove faster. Well, what happens is you take it to a mechanic and they plug the tool in and they read the code. And usually it's something really stupid and really stupid expensive. And then you take it back to that mechanic and they fix it. And as soon as you get in the car after it's been fixed, it feels like a new car again. You feel like you could drive straight across the country in that, in that car. There's something subconscious in this that happens that when we fix a part in a car, we, we feel as though the car is new somehow. When you drive an old car like mine, when you fix a part in the car, you don't think that. You just notice all of the other old parts that needed to be replaced. And in some respect, what Jesus is doing this morning in the sermon is he's saying, you can't keep replacing the parts. You need a new engine. The only way to fix the problem is for it to be just start over. You cannot fix enough parts to make this car whole again. And so this morning it will probably sound to you like just another check engine light. Like, hey, pay attention, there's something going on here you need to address. But what Jesus is is prescribing is something much different and much bigger and much more holistic. Four weeks ago, we read Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 17 and 20, which said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then over the last three weeks now, Jesus has explained in further detail what this life of greater righteousness looks like, what this kingdom law is. And you might think of these as examples highlighting where human tradition and teaching had diluted the the intent and the meaning of the Torah, the Old Testament law, and had been relegated merely to govern external behavior or moral perfection. So, Jesus here in Matthew 5 is standing on the mountain as a new and greater Moses, describing another covenant law, the law of the kingdom. And he's not negating the Old Testament law, nor changing its original intent. These examples he gives are not antithesis, they are exegesis. He is getting back to the heart and soul of the Old Testament law, and it it is fulfilled in that way in his teaching. It is fulfilled because he lives that way in his life, and it is fulfilled as he calls kingdom people to live in this way. And this morning we pick up with Jesus' sixth and final exposition of the law. And in it, we will find that citizens of the kingdom radically love others without regard to merit from their whole being. Citizens of the kingdom radically love others regardless of their merit from their whole being. It is this love, this radical love, that is a manifestation of the greater righteousness that Jesus is proclaiming. And as Jesus is redefining what it means to be whole and human and fully alive in his kingdom, supernatural, radical love is a central characteristic. So now, keep in mind, this is more than just a check engine light. But turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 and follow along as I begin reading in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? It's unmistakable here that love, radical love, is a central piece of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. Radical love as opposed to convenient love. As we walk through this passage, we are seeking not merely to understand cognitively what it means to love our enemies, but that we would be massaged into living this way by the word. Citizens of the kingdom radically love others, regardless of their merit. And we'll look here at this passage, we'll walk through it, and we'll simply look at what Jesus what, what has been said, what Jesus says, and finally why he says it. So Jesus, as he's done five times already, recites familiar uh, Old Testament teaching to his audience. In verse 43, he says, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And there are two parts here, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So we'll talk about the first first. What does it mean to love your neighbor? What does it mean to love? There are a lot of different ideas summed up in this one word. I mean, I love my wife, and I love my daughter, and I love tacos. And I'm clearly using those in different senses. So in what sense are we to love our neighbor? Jesus is reiterating an Old Testament command to agape, love your neighbor. This kind of love is without condition despite the cost to the one loving. It could be defined as an affection for the good of the other. So love is what speaks. Love is what shows generosity. Love opens its doors. Love thinks well of people. Whatever is good for the beloved, love both desires and distributes freely. So that might be helpful, but what does it mean to love, to show that kind of uh, desire for the good of my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Jesus has been asked this question. I'm asking today, but Jesus has been asked this question, and he told a story. He told a story that really was spoken into a uh, context much like ours where neighbors and nations were pitted against each other and the question comes out of a place of looking for exemption. I want to know who I don't need to love. Who's not my neighbor is really the question. But who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story of a good Samaritan who helps a man who was beaten by robbers and on the side of the road. And Jesus asks the question okay a priest and a Levite have also walked by and they didn't help him and the Samaritan comes he helps him. Which, which one of these is his neighbor? Which one of these was a neighbor to the man that was on the side of the road? And the answer they gave was, of course, to the one who showed mercy. This love is the one that sought the good of his neighbor. So who's your neighbor? The point, everyone is your neighbor. Specifically, let me get really specific, every person that you interact with is your neighbor. This love for neighbor, is a, it ought to mark the life of every citizen of the kingdom. Now, where have you heard this before? Jesus says, you've heard it said, where has it been said? Maybe you started reading your Bible through in a year and you got to about Leviticus, kind of where the going gets rough, and you should have kept reading. Because in Leviticus 19, in verse 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And in Leviticus 19, this command appears at the end of this beautiful, robust description of what it looks like to love your neighbor, particularly the poor and the marginalized, the refugee and the immigrant, the oppressed and the outcast. So you've heard it said in the Old Testament, in the law the Lord gave to Moses, love your neighbor. But that is only half of the statement which Jesus is quoting here. The second half is not like it. And hate your enemy. Okay, where have you heard this said? If you gave up reading in Leviticus and and you you heard love your neighbor in Leviticus 19, you might think, oh, come right after that. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's not there. And perhaps you could imply it from the Scripture's inclusion of the imprecatory Psalms or the Lord's command to um, conquer the nations of Canaan, but it isn't there. No, this is an example of an extrapolation, a human tradition being lumped in as some in substance with the law of God. The scribes and the teachers were teaching the people their own tradition and addition to the law. So you, you didn't hear it in the Bible, but really, where, where have you heard this? Hate your enemy. Maybe, maybe some music is kind of coming to your mind, and you've heard, you've heard it described as normal and good, to dig your key, into the side of his pretty little souped up four wheel drive and carve your name into his legacy. Maybe you've, maybe you've heard it said that this is normal and good, as illustrated in the John Wick like movies or the Yellowstone like TV shows, where not only is the, the, the man who are, hero who is fighting and taking vengeance against his enemies, suggested to be a normal thing, but is also elevated and honored. Or maybe you have heard it said, you shall hate your enemies from the news you consume, which has pitted our world into parties, demonizing the other over every social political issue. Or perhaps social media has said, hate your enemy. And you see it normalized. It's normalized to just throw out a witty and impersonal uh, and offensive meme or comment. And I use the word normalized because that is exactly what it has become. Normal. You almost don't need to, need to hear it said. It's just normal to hate your enemy. But citizens of the kingdom of heaven aren't normal. They're not called to normal righteousness. Jesus is calling them to a greater righteousness. And so here, while upholding the command to love your neighbor, Jesus says, In verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Jesus' call to love could not be more radical. Yes, it's righteous to love your neighbor as yourself. That is good. It is a greater righteousness to love your enemy. Now, as with the command... To love your neighbor, this statement also begs clarification. Who is my enemy that I am to seek the good of? Who is the enemy? Now, to those hearing this sermon, likely they would have immediately thought of those who were over them in Roman authority, the tax collectors and other Gentiles. For us, though, perhaps it's a bit more difficult to answer. And I think part of the reason that we have a problem thinking about who our enemies are is that if you grew up in the church you've known this verse for a long time and you've thought it's just going to be easier for me if i don't have a category of enemy i'm going to have categories of people i don't like that's fine i'm going to have categories of people that i don't get along with people who are different than me that make me uncomfortable people who i can't tolerate those are fine categories like that are fine but no i'm Those people aren't enemies. They're neighbors. Those people you don't like, they're neighbors. Those people you don't see eye to eye with, they're neighbors. So you are now doubly called to love them. If you thought they were your enemies, love them. But they're not your enemies, they're your neighbors. Love them again, even more. This kind of love marks the people of God. No, when Jesus... Jesus answers this question, who is my enemy, through a parallel statement when he continues, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The ones who persecute you are the enemies that you are to love. And why are they persecuting you? Look back at verse 11. Blessed are you, When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus is redefining even the category of enemy. An enemy is not someone against you, an enemy is someone against you because you are a member of the kingdom. An enemy is someone who is against you because they are against God. And that's the person that you're radically called to love, the same as you love your neighbor. Seek the good of your enemy. And there are enemies of the kingdom of God. There are those who have persecuted you relationally, who have cut off relationship against you for the sake of Christ. There are those who have persecuted you verbally, deriding your faith as ignorance or folly or stupid because they are enemies of the kingdom. And there are those who will, I believe, one day persecute you physically because you belong to the kingdom. And then, In that reality, these words of Jesus will become as radical as they were in his day. To love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now we prayed this morning for the persecuted church. All across the world, churches meet in hiding because of their enemies' torture of their bodies. And this morning, as as we were praying for persecuted churches, persecuted churches were gathering all across the globe and praying for their persecutors. And it's a beautiful picture of radical love. Now, what are they praying for their persecutors? What are we to pray for those who persecute us? Or rather, what does it look like to love our enemy, the enemies of the kingdom? Now, if we continue to define love as affection for another's good, then we'll bring that meaning here, desiring that what they would have is good. We're going to pray good for them. When we see them thirsty asking for water, we will give good to them. Water. And as we're praying for them, we also will keep in mind that that water will satisfy for, you know, three minutes. Living water would be better. I'll pray, I'll pray living water for them. Loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you doesn't just mean you, you ignore the, the immediate need in order to pray for the bigger need. You meet, love steps in and meets the practical need for the good of the beloved. But it is praying that the, the greater, the deepest need would be met, that the richest good would be realized and satisfied in God himself. Now, Jesus gives two reasons why this becomes a central kingdom ethic. Look with me at verse 45. This is why Jesus is saying this. The first reason is, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, so that you may be sons of God. The second reason is, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. The second reason is because God loves his enemies too. Consider this, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And Jesus has already called citizens of the kingdom sons in verse 9 when he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. A peacemaking here has a, a literal and a literary link between loving one's enemies. You can think about it. I mean, Abraham Lincoln says, how do you take your enemies? How do you get rid of your enemies? You make them your friend. Peacemaking is the means by which I love my enemy. I love my enemy by making peace. And in so doing, I am a son and living as a son. Now, as a son or daughter... What does every son do? He wants to be like dad when he grows up. What does every daughter do? He wants to be like their parents. And so we look to our father and imitate him. And what do we see him doing? He makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God loves his enemies. I see him do that. I hear the rain, I consider the gardens in the, in the world. That rain is falling on good people's gardens and bad people's gardens. It's watering and filling the reservoirs of just people and unjust people just the same. And it's not just because it's how clouds work and rains work, which so is just a big dump everywhere. It's because it's how God works. The designer of the clouds designed them to shower grace upon all people without distinction. We call it common grace. God seeks the practical good of his enemies. But more than simply common grace, Romans 5 8 through 10 gives us clear insight into the way in which God turns enemies into sons. The way, the manner in which God loves his enemies. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. It is this love that God has extended to us, that we might be called sons of God. We were once God's enemies. And it is great news this morning that God loves his enemies that God has died on their behalf, that He stands ready to embrace His enemies and call Him a son. It is that love that we imitate as we love our enemies. God seeks not just the practical good for his enemies by sending sun and rain, but he seeks the highest good for his enemies, giving them himself at great cost to himself. Now contrast that kind of love with the way the tax collectors love or the way the Gentiles love. We don't imitate them. In their way of love, we imitate God's love. And that's what Jesus does next. He says in 46 For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? It's normal to love those who love you. It's normal to welcome your brothers. This kind of love is not radical. It's not a greater righteousness. It's a normal righteousness, a pretty normal kind of love. And what reward does it bring? Do you inherit the kingdom of God? And what are you doing more than anyone else? Does your righteousness exceed anything? Loving both your neighbor and your enemies is a radical, supernatural thing. It is not a convenient love. It is not an average righteousness. All along, this has been Jesus' aim. In each of these six examples, Jesus upholds the moral law of the Old Testament and moreover fulfills it by pointing to its original and fullest intent, and interprets that as the way of the kingdom. And all along he penetrates the heart, the heart. The point being that Jesus is not after your behavior. He wants all of you, your whole person, The part that people see and the part they don't. The part you think is pretty and the part you think is ugly. And Jesus is raising the bar. Everything that the Pharisees thought and did, he raises it. You might have thought that the law was an unattainable standard before. And Jesus says, nope, it's even higher. It has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And he points to God himself as the standard of righteousness. So now, in verse 48, Jesus makes explicit in the conclusion of these six illustrations that we are to imitate God. And here we find the summary call, the final call to a life of greater righteousness. We find both the substance and the source of this way of life in the kingdom. Now, would you listen as I read verse 48? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Really? Like perfect, perfect? Mostly perfect. He's forgotten an adverb, an adjective, some descriptor of a narrow version of perfect. In what sense are we to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect? I believe the Greek word here is of helpful significance. Not that we are looking for a loophole, but that we are looking for clarity on what is he actually requiring of us. And it's significant not, not merely just for understanding this verse or this section of the sermon or the sermon in whole, but in understanding life as a Christian, in understanding the whole of Scripture. And the word is "telios." It is translated in your Bibles as perfect. And it is not wrong. The translation is not wrong. You can trust your Bible. But the sense, I believe, of teleos, is broader than just the simple English rendering of perfect. It includes perfect in its semantic meaning, its range, but it is broader than that. Jonathan Pennington, in his masterful work, The the Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, spends probably a third of the book making the argument that this word teleos is... Similar to our meaning of wholeness or completeness. Which really would be perfect. If we were whole and complete, that would be good. Things as they ought to be within us. The picture is of of being wholly perfect. That means perfect in all of the parts. Not just the behavior. Perfect in the heart. Perfect in the mind, perfect with your eyes, perfect with your money, perfect with your food, perfect with your family, perfect in total. So the wholeness, the teleos, certainly includes our understanding of perfection, but it is, it's a perfection that's bigger than just merely one that is in your head or thoughts or heart or affections or hands and behavior. It is one that pervades all of Life And the same word is later translated in the New Testament as mature or complete. Now, translating the word as wholeness helps us to see a little bit what Jesus is doing in verse 48. And how verse 48 now serves as the conclusion to this section on greater righteousness in Matthew 5, because Jesus has been moving from the particulars, the small pieces, to the universal all along. He moves from the particulars of your emotions and anger, your desires, lust, your commitments, divorce, your words, oaths, your reactions, eye for an eye, and your affections, love, all pointing to the universal. You, therefore, must be whole and perfect as your heavenly Father is whole and perfect. All of you. Your head, your heart, your hands, all of you, your thoughts, your affections, your actions. He leaves no room here. There's no room for compartmentalizing life in the kingdom of God. Your sin that doesn't hurt anyone is out of step with life in the kingdom. Those thoughts you think that you would never say are out of step with life in the kingdom. All along, behavior modification is not Jesus' primary goal. Whole person transformation is what he aims for. Now, Jesus p- both playfully and powerfully uses this word teleost to convey the rich sense of the wholeness or the greater righteousness that characterizes people in the kingdom of God. And he's in particular playing on this word with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees hearing this, well, I don't know, maybe you have a life verse. You have like a verse that defines you that you go back to, your favorite verse. The Pharisees had one. Leviticus 19.2 which says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Sounds familiar? You should be perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect, you should be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Nobody was holier than the Pharisees. You couldn't compete with them. Now, they hear this, this sentence, but Jesus is using the word teleos. In the the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word in Leviticus 19.2 is not teleos. He is not quoting Leviticus 19.2. He is fulfilling Leviticus 19.2. The word there is hagia, holy. The word in Matthew 5.48 is teleos, whole. Lest the Pharisees start to feel vindicated for their holiness... Jesus reminds them that they are not holy, holy, that their perfection is not complete and pervasive, it is merely outward, and he is requiring that the inside match the outside. Now, the, the people in the audience on the mountainside would also have understood significance or power in this word. They would have imported meaning. Um, Jesus is teaching to an audience in a Greco-Roman world, and this world and its ideas were built on the philosophers. For Plato, the idea of teleos was the result of moving from mere body reality into uh, the world of ideas. The chief idea was that of goodness. So people, as they contemplated goodness, would become more good in their life, And as the goodness kind of took root in every area of life, they would become teleos, virtuous, holy, good. And that was kind of his philosophical goal. Aristotle builds on this and really simply just says that teleos is when the telos, which is the goal or the end for which something was created, is realized. And so he said the Life was meant to be in pursuit of virtue. And when you find virtue, then you will become teleos. But you will never find virtue if not every part of you is virtuous. You will never be virtuous if not all of your parts are virtuous. And so they were connected, this idea of virtue and wholeness, or teleos. Now imagine hearing Jesus' words, be telios." as your heavenly Father is telling us. Not as the philosophers say to be telling us, but as your heavenly Father is telling us. Perfect, whole, in justice, love, righteousness. This is exactly what Jesus was aiming at. Your whole being must be in one accord, aligned with God. Stop fixing the broken parts. The O2 sensor, fuel pump, the whole engine needs to be replaced. Now, our problem with this is not necessarily understanding the command. I think you understand. Be whole. Don't let... This is even just desirable in our context and culture. We have holistic medicine, which looks at the whole person's healing. The call to wholeness is one of, it's great. If, if you were whole and everything that you did was in unity, that there was no part of you that was hidden or secret or unsafe or wily, that you were constantly battling with, it would be a wonderful thing. This is a great place to be. But our problem is not necessarily with understanding that, but with practically, how do I get to be whole? How do I get this? I desire it, but how do I get it? And clearly, in Matthew 5, the solution is not to try harder and do better. The Pharisees have tried that, and Jesus continually says Exceed them better than that. Something must happen on the inside. Something must happen that transforms the center, the core of who we are and begin to blossom and flower and take over every part of life. Now, you might have thought it was good news that God loves his enemies in Christ earlier. You're right. But here is some good news. Look at what he does for his enemies when they place their faith in Jesus who died and rose again. He does not merely make them right with himself and then stand passively and idly and watch them figure it out. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. God is speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God does three things. He cleanses our past, forgiven our sin, white as snow, our failures and shortcomings. Clean. And God gives a new heart that Not just the center of affection, but the center of your being. The core, the thing that makes you think what you think and feel what you feel and do what you do. The thing that has led you astray time after time. The thing that is duplicitous and broken. That heart's removed. And instead you're given a heart of flesh. In Jeremiah's um, description of the new covenant, he describes the law being written on your heart. No longer is the law an external a set of rules for you to keep externally. It is written on your heart, and now it must be kept from the heart. And God gives us His Spirit. You thought your problem was just your body that was prohibiting you from doing the things you ought to do. No, the problem lies deeper in your spirit. A thing that makes you you is simply unwilling, and unable to live life as God has intended. And instead of just giving you a new spirit, like making that new, the Holy Spirit himself, the third member of the Trinity, resides within you. And he is not just an idle presence sitting there and hoping you figure it out. No, he he causes you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He bears fruit in your life, in all of these different places of your life where you thought maybe you had it figured out. He comes in and renovates, and renews, and restores. Life in the kingdom is not achieved, cannot be maintained by doing better and trying harder. You need God to love his enemies enough to die for them so that they might also live with him fully alive. You need God to adopt you as a son or a daughter, because God gives his children his unwavering commitment to see them transformed into the image of Christ. You get into the kingdom by grace alone. You stay in the kingdom by grace alone. You live in the kingdom by grace alone. And it is then, only then, when your inner parts have been replaced, and the Spirit has It sits on the throne in your life that you can radically love others regardless of merit from your whole being. This is really the essence of what we remember and what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We remember His body broken, His blood shed for His enemies. We remember that we, his enemies, have become his children. We celebrate that he is not on the sidelines cheering us on, but is in us, with us, for us, residing in securing our complete transformation. We are his and he is ours. We commune with God through Jesus. The Lord's Supper is a regular rhythm by which the people of God, the citizens of the kingdom, remind themselves of that transformation. In rest in the finished work of Jesus, who look to the perfection of their Savior. Surely, some of you are enemies of God this morning. You reject Him. You run from Him. You make fun of Him. And you need to hear that God is Loves you. Not a little bit, all the way. He loves you enough to die on your behalf so that you could be made right with him. He wants you to be a son instead of an enemy. And surely in this room, some of you are more like Pharisees than you would like to admit. You're in church today maybe because it's conventional righteousness. It's what you do. It's expected of you. Or maybe you came today hoping that maybe Monday through Saturday would would be better because you came than they would be if you just stayed at home. That's not why we get together. In this, you are not whole. As a Pharisee, you are not wholly devoted to Jesus. Part of you is. And you need to hear that God loves you. God is waiting to transform you, that you would live life whole and complete, the life you were meant to live. Some of you have a new heart and new spirit, and you don't feel very new. You don't you don't look or feel very perfect. God calls you righteous because you are in Christ. And Jesus speaks to you, and he says, you'll find rest for your souls when you rest in communion with your Savior. Run to him. And this celebration is for those who can say, I am his and he is mine whose heart and spirit have been replaced and either that new heart and new spirit are 50 seconds old or 50 years old. You know his death was yours and his life is yours and remember him again this morning. And as you do, would you notice his smile as he looks on his children this morning? I want you to spend just one moment here in silence considering all of the different parts of your life, the parts that the sum of which is the whole. As you consider those parts, would you ask the Lord to identify uh, the parts that are not in line with the new spirit and the new heart within you? Would you ask him to find the beliefs, desires, or behaviors that you've kept hidden? And ask him to bring wholeness and completeness, that you would experience life in the kingdom as life was meant to be lived. And then in a moment, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Yes, Jesus, would you have your way in us and would you transform us from the inside out to be your kingdom people here on earth and would we represent you well? We remember what you have done and rejoice. Would you take the cup that you received as you walked in and peel off the first layer? The Apostle Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we delight in the goodness of the news that you love us. Through your Son, we delight that we have become your children. And would we now yield to your Spirit within us? Would we find in you and you alone a newness, a wholeness of life, such that we would love our enemy even as you love us, and be whole in perfect even as you are whole in perfect? We need your help, and we need you to save us from trying harder and doing better. We need you to save us by sitting on the throne in our life and causing us to walk in your statutes and obey your rules. Would you help us in your name? Amen.